everybody, and welcome to Life, Death, and the Space Between podcast. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist and medium, and here we explore life, death, consciousness, and what it all means. I'm so moved to share today's podcast with you all. Today, I have Miguel Sancho on the show. Miguel is an Emmy-winning journalist and author of the book, More Than You Can Handle, a rare disease, a family in crisis, and cutting-edge medicine that cured the incurable. This book chronicles the lives, deaths, and rebirths of patients and staff at Duke University Hospital Pediatric Bone Marrow Transplant Unit, where his son's life was saved in 2016. Miguel is also an executive producer of non-scripted television documentaries and series, currently show-running and developing projects with Six West Productions. His most recent project, The Proof is Out There, premiered on the History Channel in January 2021. Prior to his work at A&E Networks, Miguel accumulated more than two decades of experiences of experience producing national television news broadcasts, most recently as a senior producer for ABC News Program 2020. He he has conceived and managed the production of hundreds of primetime broadcasts ranging from long-term documentary projects to live breaking news specials. With a background in investigative reporting, he oversaw many of the most legally sensitive projects the network aired during his tenure there. He and his teams have won many of the industry's top journalism awards, including the Edward R. Murrow, the George Polk, the Sigma Delta Chi, the IRE, and the 2017 Emmy for an hour-long documentary special on the Las Vegas Massacre. During his years in the field, he's covered stories all across the U.S. and abroad, including Latin America, Europe, Africa, and the Middle East. Miguel currently lives in in the New York area with his wife, Felicia Morton, and their two children, Lydia and Sebastian. Welcome, Miguel. Thank you all for continuing to listen to the podcast, for sharing the podcast, for following me on Instagram, for following me on YouTube and Fireside. So if you don't know what those things are, you can find me on Instagram at Dr. Amy Robbins. That is where I am most active. So if you DM me on Facebook or another platform, even though I have an account, chances are you will not hear back from me for quite some time. Also, if you want to get in touch with me, if you have a story to share, please email me at dramyrobbins at gmail.com. I want to thank anybody who has already contributed to my Patreon page. Every little bit helps me continue to make this podcast great for all of you. And I have so many so many people still on my list that I want to reach out to and continue to provide you all with great content that helps you learn and grow and that helps me learn and grow, frankly. So if you can contribute, please head over to Patreon and just put in my name and my um, Patreon page will pop up and you can donate any amount. Like I said, any little bit helps. You can also find me right now on YouTube if you want to watch my interviews. You can also find me on Fireside Live, which has been so fun. My audiences are still pretty small over on Fireside, so it really does give people the opportunity to ask questions of my guests. I have some great episodes coming up that you will want to check out. 
And part of how you're going to be learning about my episodes is that I am recommitting to my newsletter, which I have been remiss to be doing lately. So I apologize for those of you who are uh, our subscribers. You have not gotten anything from me in quite some time, but that is changing. So what you can expect if you do subscribe to my newsletter is a weekly update with the show notes and transcripts from my current episode and also a little bit of a calendar as to what's to come. So you can mark your calendars for my upcoming fireside episodes that you might want to be a part of and partake in. Also, you will still be getting that soul wisdom. Uh, as you all uh, have probably heard, I am going to be trying to go deeper into my own spiritual work in the next couple weeks months ahead and as part of that really digging into my soul wisdom and really trying to meditate and bring whatever information comes to me in meditation to you all as well because i believe that whatever i hear is collective for all of us to hear so you can subscribe to that at dramyrobbins.com as well i've got a new website coming so lots of exciting stuff coming that i don't want anybody to miss so here is today's episode. Thank you. That's so kind of you. You read the whole bio. My goodness. Got the whole I, uh, thing. I well, didn't... I wanted people to know sort of the uh, expansiveness to what you've experienced in your life and what you've seen, because I think it's an important part of your story. And can you just start by telling us a little bit? I know it's going to be hard to, to kind of whittle down this beautiful story that you have told in your book. But a quick, quick synopsis for my reader, for my listeners about your life with Sebastian. Yeah, I mean, the book, as they say in the publishing industry, is kind of a feathered fish. It's kind of a, a, a combination of a few different uh, genres of book. On the one hand, it is kind of a uh, medical and, and scientifical, scientific uh, exploration of, of this cutting-edge medicine that's saving children's lives uh, from rare diseases. And on the other, it's a more kind of intimate uh, and personal uh, memoir of our own family's experience, as well as the experiences of other families whose lives were completely uh, upended by a rare, rare disease diagnosis with their children. And it kind of tries to uh, recount how families, including ours, kind of navigate um, that kind of devastating news and its aftermath. And, and tell us a little bit about what happened with Sebastian, because his journey was is pretty remarkable. Sure, and thank you for the opportunity. Uh, first, I always preface this by saying, you know, we had it tough, but a lot of people had it a lot tougher. Um, Which is so, hard to imagine as you're reading, <laughs> as you're reading yeah, the book, because it's yeah. pretty... It, it was very harrowing at moments, but, uh, you know, my son survived, which not every rare uh, disease parent can say tragically. Uh, but the, the story in a nutshell is this. In 2012, um, my wife and I, who'd had wonderful experience with uh, the birth and infancy of our first child, uh, went back for seconds. And uh, our son, Sebastian, was born in 2012. And within a few months, he started developing a series of very scary and frankly, undiagnosable uh, infections that had, you know, rooms full of specialists uh, kind of puzzled as to what was going on with him. They required hospitalizations, some minor surgeries, lots of medicine, scary stuff, especially when you're dealing with a child that small, right? Two-month-old child. Uh, and after about three or four months of this, my wife 
uh, insisted that we speak to an immunologist who in turn performed a battery of tests for uh, a number of rare diseases. And sure enough, one of them came back positive, which was good news in the sense that we finally knew what was going on with our son and had some sense of how to treat him. The bad news was that the disease was very rare, oftentimes lethal, uh, but uh, even and even though it could be managed and is managed by thousands of patients uh, today with varying degrees of success, the only known curative treatment, the only way to truly put it in the rearview mirror, was itself one of the most harrowing, arduous, and painful medical procedures one can undertake, specifically a bone marrow transplant, uh, more medically accurate to say a hematopoietic stem cell transplant. Um, in essence, it's an immune system transplant, but it's commonly referred to as a bone marrow transplant. Mm-hmm. Which entailed you uprooting your entire family, moving to, to Durham, to Duke Medical Center, where you lived for... About 10 months. 10 months. Mm-hmm. Um, they depleted his entire immune system, put in the new immune system, right? You called it a rebirth. Mm-hmm. Um, a, a rebirth day because his entire immune system was wiped out. And then he is now how old? He's now, uh, he just turned nine in May and he's uh, you know, completely cured and is living the life of a kid for whom you know, nothing like this has ever happened. Um, you know, when one describes it that way, it seems yes. pretty simple, right? It seems right, like, exactly. you know. Exactly. Making a making a uh, making a lasagna, but um, you know the the truth of the matter is first of all, we we wrestled for years uh, with the choice of deciding whether or not to try to manage the disease, which as I said, people can do with usually some significant um, impediment of quality and or quality of life. Um, and then deciding where we were going to do it, how we were going to do all that. That, that took years. We didn't, we didn't actually go through the transplant until Sebastian was about to turn four. Mm-hmm. And then the transplant itself is essentially a year-long process uh, where you indeed, as you say, kind of annihilate the existing immune system with chemotherapy, in our case, rather severe doses of chemotherapy, um, infuse the new donor blood cells, cross your fingers that they engraft, and then very meticulously and carefully try to reconstruct a new immune system essentially from scratch, which is a months and sometimes years long process that almost always involves some sort of setback, either major or minor. So there was the sort of practical scientific maneuvering of this. And then there was the real personal emotional maneuvering of this. And that's the piece I want to touch on. And I'm going to pull some stuff out of the book that I felt like resonated certainly with me and I think will resonate with, with people who are listening. So you, you've clearly, why I wanted to give a lot of the background is because I think you've, you've clearly seen a lot in your life. You've experienced a lot doing the work that you do as a producer. But you say in the book, you've been to the Vatican the Western Wall, and countless other places of worship. But at your son's bedside is where you felt the closest to God. So you were not a religious person. You're, I'm not sure where, I know where things sort of ended in the book. I'm curious a little bit where things stand now, because this was something that you really struggled with as your wife sort of moved closer to 
religion and faith and uh, connection to something higher and greater, you really went back and forth with this. So can you tell us a little bit about that process for you and, and where you've landed and how it has helped her and how it has maybe helped you or not helped you? I'm kind of curious yeah. where it all stands today. Yeah, it's a big question. So, you know, kind of make some signal to me if I start rambling too long and you want me no, to no, abridge the answer. Um, well, first of all, I should say I didn't start out as kind of some sort of strident, committed atheist. Uh, I had been raised uh, Catholic, but I hadn't been going to church very often. We started going to church when our children were born, largely because I think regardless of how one interprets the text of the theology, going to church does three things. A, it uh, forces kids to sit in the seat without being the center of their attention and without being tickled by electronic stimulus for an hour, which is a good in and of itself. B, it uh, inculcates, I think, some sort of ethical teaching, uh, if you're paying attention to it. <clears throat> and C, it inculcates some degree of biblical literacy, which again, whether or not you think the Bible is the word of God or just something as interesting as Shakespeare, is nevertheless worth having some sort of uh, command over. So that was kind of my approach. Um, now, when this uh, disease broke over the bow and we had to deal with it. Uh, my wife and I kind of took somewhat divergent uh, paths, maybe maybe more significant divergent paths. My wife, who had also, her name is Felicia, by the way, she's a wonderful woman, um, arguably a much better person than I am. She, um, you know, really embraced the faith for the reason that many, many people do. It's not because they're superstitious or because they, uh, you know, kind of have abandoned all their critical facilities when they walk in the house of worship, but because they find themselves, due to the circumstances of their lives, really in need of some form of strength to help them uh, survive and, and continue through their journey. And it's, it's something that people have done throughout history, um, kind of tap into faith and religion and their belief in God as a means of overcoming and transcending uh, their own weaknesses and fears and doubts. And that's a good thing. We, we should, um, you know, it, it's, it's John Dominic Crossan, who's a wonderful theologian who I've read and interviewed a couple of times, is, uh, compares faith to a, a courtesy outlet in an airport for your laptop. Um, as awkward as that metaphor sounds, it is rather apt. He says it's, you know, there's, there's this power that's there for you to plug into if you choose to. And, you know, whether or not you avail yourself of it, um, it's always there for you. So that's exactly how Felicia approached it. Um, I um, dealt with things, and part of what the first half of the book is about is how I kind of dealt with things uh, rather imperfectly, rather objectionably. Um, I did not, you know, start praying and believing that the power of prayer was going to help my son through this uh, ordeal or help him through his healing process. Um, you know, I did a number of things that I would not recommend, including kind of a somewhat retrograde macho approach to the philosophy of stoicism. Um, I tried workaholism. I tried to kind of compartmentalize things in such a way that there were still areas of my life that I felt where I was in control, whereas this entire part of my life was completely out of control. And uh, ultimately, you know, it made things worse, and it kind of cascaded into a whole constellation of problems for me 
not least of which was um, a serious fraying of my marriage and my relationship with Felicia, my wife. Um, which is really common when you're faced with a with a child who has a serious, potentially lethal illness. You're absolutely right. I and mean, that's one of the reasons I wrote the book. I mean, it's often the case you hear of these families who have, have been impacted by a diagnosis. And the narrative is essentially that they somehow tap into an infinite reservoir of strength and altruism and care. And it brings families together in a way they've never been bonded before. And that is indeed often the case. Um, you know, the, the data and the research is kind of split 50-50 about the percentage of couples who end up, you know, kind of getting through this and the percentage of couples for whom a diagnosis like this just devastates uh, the relationship and the marriage um, irreparably. So, you know, sadly, we found myself rooting for you guys. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I think you find yourself, one can find oneself, and I certainly did, at a situation where you're like, wow, this is for real. It's not fun and games. This is not something that's just going to go away. I have been, frankly, making things worse rather than making things better or even just being neutral. And I need to take some serious steps to turn things around, not to be some sort of hero, but just to rise to the degree of adequacy where I'm, where I'm fulfilling what I understand to be my responsibilities as a husband and a father and a provider. And, and that's not always an easy thing to admit. No. Um, you know, particularly in my case, you know, and again, I, the book is not all about me, 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 but um, I'm happy to discuss it. You know, I was having, <clears throat> you know, serious issues with anxiety and depression and anger management. And for me, you know, you can tell by looking at me, I don't make my living with my body, right? Or my face. Um, <laughs> I, I make my living, you know, with my intellectual capacities such as they are. So when I was hit with the reality that, you know, the one thing that I had going for me, my brain wasn't actually working the way it was supposed to in certain regards, that's a very difficult pill to swallow. So, uh, yeah, and it took a long time, tragically. I mean, it took, uh, you know, the diagnosis took place in the fall of 2012. It really wasn't until fall of 2013 that I kind of woke up and smelled the coffee and realized that if I didn't take active steps and, you know, adopt a series of disciplines and stick to them, that in addition to dealing with um, this disease, my kids were going to have to deal with the impact of a divorce. Well, and what I really appreciated throughout the book was your experience sort of in and out of both therapy, meditation, medication, exercise, all of what you you called the program. Mm -hmm. Go ahead. Yeah, no, I was just going to say I, I, I'm one of those people, and I think there's lots of us out there, who when you kind of commit to plan A or plan B – you kind of feel that it has to be, you know, it, it almost feels like a dating relationship. In other words, what I'm trying to say is that if you commit to something like meditation and then you find, you know, a couple months into it that meditation is helping, but it's not, you know, doing everything that you were hoping it could do and you find yourself dabbling or thinking about dabbling in other modalities of self-help, for lack of a better term, mm -hmm. uh, it can feel like you're being somehow disloyal or you're failing as a meditator. 
Um, and that's kind of one of the things I wanted to say in the book. From the perspective, by the way, of a total amateur, uh, as someone who's much more of a thought follower than a thought leader, just from just as a, just from the perspective of a guy who's trying to keep his stuff together, um, which is you know, most people in this world, <laughs> that you know, kind of the the surround the football or the polytherapist technique, whatever you want to call it, um, kind of is what what did the trick for me. You know, again, I tried meditation and it worked to a certain degree, but not enough. I tried therapy and it worked to a certain degree, but it didn't again cover the whole thing. I tried. Um, uh, some uh, psychotropic medications, which I still take on a limited basis, some antidepressants. And it was only kind of after I was doing a combination of all these things um, that it kind of all came together for me. And even when it did, it wasn't like, you know, everything was totally fixed and every crack was spackled over and everything was just completely smooth sailing. But basically, you know, I, I think that people can get too fixated on one approach and kind of count on that as, as being a, an all encompassing one-stop shop solution. Right. Like there's a panacea out there. And if you just find it, these feelings will dissipate. And I found myself, you know, I've been, my listeners know I was in therapy for basically 17 years of traditional therapy and then many more years of, of energy healing and other things, mm -hmm. um, meditating, you know, a lot of good self-care because I take care of others. And the reality is that I was reading your book thinking to myself, I, I don't know that I would be in any better spot than he is. And I've been doing all of this for as long as I have. And I think that there's just the humanness of, what you were experiencing. It's like, how can you not feel everything that you were describing over the course of this time, the ups and the downs, the emotions, you know, I've had friends who have had partners and loved ones live, be living with diagnoses that every time, you know, you live month to month or week to week or scan to scan or whatever it is. And it is, it is humbling to watch other people walk this path and get up in the morning, frankly. And I think that that was just remarkable how you kind of, not always gracefully, but certainly did it, right? You, you got up, you worked, you took care of your other daughter who's, or your daughter who sounds like she has a beautiful spirit. Um, and, and so that to me was just, I think we often hear these stories and we get like the other side of it, but not the path and the journey that it took to get there. Yeah, no, I appreciate you saying that. And it's, uh, you know, at a certain point you have to, you know, and, and the book is called More Than You Can Handle because I think, like you were saying, many, many people, aside from the people in the rare disease community, have found themselves staring in the bathroom mirror or looking up at the ceiling above their bed and saying to themselves, either out loud or, <laughs> or silently, this situation is more than I can handle. Mm -hmm. um, and what do you do then, right? I mean, the, the, the cliche that always rubbed me, you know, the wrong way was, you know, God give, never gives you more than you can handle, um, which I always thought was rather facile and demonstrably false, by the way. Uh, so, you know, what do you do then? And especially in a situation where you're not really allowed to fail, people are depending on you. Um, that's kind of the, the dilemma that a lot of parents in our, in our situation faced. Well, and it did feel like, I mean, not only your story, but the other 
members of this community that you shared who were either at Duke while you were there or had left, it did feel like it was more than any one person could handle. So how do you how do you find the strength in a situation like that? And how does your I mean, your wife had such a sort of steadfast faith. Uh, How do you how do you continue with that when it feels like a lot of people will say, you know, is God against me or what did I do to deserve this? You know, people go into that kind of victim camp, for lack of a better word. How did you stay? I don't want to say above that because it's not it's not like a judgment of if people fall below it, it's a bad thing. But how did you continue on believing that things were going to be okay? Right. Well, one part of my program, which uh, I encourage people to adopt, is really kind of plunging into the science of the whole situation. Um, Not just because, you know, knowledge is power um, and because you have kind of an obligation to get somewhat literate in that particular medical field to advocate for your child patient, but because science and knowledge is really an exercise in optimism, right? I mean, the fact that we're making such progress, the fact that we have all these breakthroughs, the fact that diseases that are once considered lethal are now being cured, not just treated in some cases, but cured permanently, is a breathtaking testament to the field and to our achievements as a species and as a, excuse me, as a civilization. That doesn't mean everything's perfect. That doesn't mean that the medical uh, industry is above reproach. But it certainly does mean that when you are engaged in this on an intimate level, you are participating simply by dint of providing some of your data in this very, very noble progress. You're building, you know, a mountain of achievement that has been built not just by the people in the white coats, but by the suffering and the sacrifices of patients and families who've come before. And that I thought was very ennobling. Um, I always thought that, you know, even if my son didn't make it, even if he died, um, you know, we might, and our, our experience and what we're contributing to the science will make his life meaningful in a big way. Um, among other different ways is why life would be meaningful, but certainly that he would be, we're, we're contributing to a, a highly uh, noble cause. Um, and the other thing that I also think people would do, which is basically the, the, the first baby step of the meditative practice, is you know just make a real point of acknowledging the, whatever intense feeling you're having, whether it's anxiety, whether it's depression, whether it's anger, whether it's um, fear, uh, is just that. It's a feeling, right? Give it its space, give it its time, but just say to yourself, it's so helpful just to say, okay, I am a person who's having this feeling, and there's some reasons why I'm having this feeling, um, but I don't need to let this feeling completely enslave me. I can try to distance, I can make a conscious effort to be mindful, that's what mindfulness is, to distance myself from the intensity of this feeling to the point that I don't need it to let it control how I react, how I interact with other people who are dealing with their own stuff. Um, that doesn't mean... Again, it's not a stoic position. It's not a, you know, I don't mind this. It's not a thank you, sir, may I have another position. But it's uh, just one for me was a very, very helpful way to kind of take stock of myself and keep myself in check. 
Well, and tell everybody who introduced you to this concept of meditation. That was a little fun fact in there. Oh, yeah. So I, when I was at ABC, I worked with Dan Harris, who has become, you know, one of a you know, ever-growing uh, population of uh, mindfulness gurus, mindfulness experts. Uh, and, you know, I was very fortunate in being able to kind of ask him personally for some advice. And I have to say, you know, I thought when I asked him, you know, for help, that he was just going to say, meditate, 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 that he was just going to do this kind of one note uh, response. But it was he who first said, you know, just try everything that's out there, um, whatever works. Um, if in no small part, because he observed that uh, spouses in general will give credit for effort, you know, um, if, regardless of what the actual practices, regardless of what kind of demonstrable results, you know, if you're, if you're having relationship issues and the other person is at least saying, yes, there are issues and I'm willing to work on them, um, that counts. Mm -hmm. So um, that made a big difference. Mm -hmm. And I love, you talked about his, his podcast and I think his book is 10% happier, right? Mm -hmm. I know his podcast. And it was, and it, you said in the book, well, it was, it was 10%. But it wasn't like where I needed to be, which was maybe 100% happier, right? And you couldn't be at that time. It was just what you were experiencing. I think it's, it's a, it, to me, it would have been about finding moments, tiny moments of happiness in what was a really tumultuous, challenging, emotional, difficult time. Yeah, I mean, I have, I have two critiques of meditation. Um... The one is that uh, it doesn't get, at least, you know, for me, uh, it doesn't get, didn't get me all the way there, right? Mm -hmm. it, it helped me do the things that I was just describing, dissociate myself from negative feelings. And, um, but, you know, there were, when I, you know, there was a very specific time in the chronology of the book where I'd begun meditation and I thought it was working. And then we had another setback. We had some uh, you know, medical challenge actually with my other child. And I just found myself completely, you know, sliding back to square one. And I, I said, okay, this is the moment for the meditation. And instead of kind of, you know, <laughs> alleviating my anxiety, what meditation did was basically just wipe out all the other thoughts that were kind of helping me distract myself from my anxiety and making more room in the cargo hold for the anxiety to flood in. Mm -hmm. So that's when basically, um, you know, I said, okay, I'm going to keep meditating. I'm not giving up on this, but I do need something else. Mm -hmm. um, which turned out to be, um, like I said, a combination of therapy and, uh, and medication. And that, that also, you know, was a very important piece of the puzzle. The other issue I have with meditation uh, is that it can be a little, it can be a little clubby. It can be a little, um, um, part, well, factionalist, I guess I should say there are, you know, ongoing kind of disputes between the mindfulness practitioners and the transcendental meditation practitioners. And, you know, sometimes I get the feeling that there's, it's part of a movement and, you know, it's our responsibility to make more people to kind of join this movement and participate and help enlighten the world. And I, I guess I agree with that in principle, but like I said, I am not on a mission. My only mission is to try to get through the day. Um, well, and I think what's so powerful and, and, where I've found myself after being a therapist for almost 20 years is if there, if therapy isn't what works for you 
That's fine with me, but find something that does, whatever that is. It could be meditation. It could be yoga. It could be walking, running. I don't care what you choose to do. Just do something that help, that feels like it helps you. And that sounds like what you did. You kept kind of tweaking the, the program. Yeah. And to this day, you know, I'll still, you know, kind of mix and match. Like right now um, in the summer, I've um, been trying to exercise, to keep that piece of it going, keep the mindfulness piece of it going. Uh, I'm not currently in therapy or couples therapy. And, you know, I, I have this ongoing prescription for the antidepression. Um, and I take it. And, but I, of course, you know, I fall into this trap where like, I'm feeling fine. So I say, why would I need to keep taking this medication? Um, and I kind of have to remind myself that, you know, it's a bad idea to go off it. If you do go off it, you need to taper it. You can't go cold turkey. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I, I've always kind of treated the pills like, like, like aspirin. Like, why would you take them unless you have a headache? So, mm-hmm. um, you know, I, I still do that and I'm pretty good about it. Um, and of course I could do more. So can you talk to me a little about loving kindness for you? Cause that concept really seemed to be something that was pretty transformative. And even after the, your son's transplant and after he was doing better, it seemed like it almost illuminated for you at that point. Yeah. So, I mean, again, people who are familiar with, uh, meditation will, will, most likely be familiar with the term metta, which is the Sanskrit word for loving kindness. Um, and of course it's just a principle in its, in its most superficial statement, right? You are supposed to be loving and kind toward everybody. Okay. Who, you know, every, every religion and every philosophy incorporates that idea. But in practice, what it means is first, while you're meditating, focusing on that exact thought, for minutes on end, sharing and wishing love and kindness upon um, not just yourself, not just the people you care about, but literally every other living thing around you. And that's, you know, step one. And then the other practice that I adopted is just actually when you're, when I was walking around and going to work or um, going on a trip or something, consciously doing that, like looking at the flight attendant on an airline or looking at uh, an Uber driver or looking at a dog walking in Central Park and consciously wishing loving kindness on them. Uh, It's a wonderful exercise, uh, largely because it's a successful antidote to kind of apathy and uh, sometimes (laughs) blanket um, misanthropy or hostility that we can feel towards other people. Um, who are, you know, either getting in our way or taking up space or being slow or are just not actively helping us in some kind of uh, transactional or instrumental way that we can we can approach human relationships sometimes. So, you know, again, and part of that, a big part of that is acknowledging that the other person, whoever it is, is probably dealing with something, Right. Mm-hmm big or small or something that we might consider small, but is big to them, you know, everybody's carrying around, um, you know, the stresses and the, and the traumas and the bad breaks that are just a part of life. And I think that's crucial to, for me, especially, I'm not talking about to anybody else. I'm just talking about me as somebody who frankly 
had a habit of being a bit of a dick, um, <laughs> of being somewhat curt, of being somewhat uh, arrogant. And, you know, and again, I, I really want to make sure everybody understands. I'm, it's not like I'm, you know, totally seen the light and I'm 100% transformed and cured and I'll never make a nasty comment in the rest of my life. But for if, if, if you are like me in that regard, the loving kindness piece of it is a very, very important counterbalance to keep from sliding into, especially if you yourself are under stress and trauma and you feel that the world's been unfair to you, that, um, you know, everybody else is kind of walking between the raindrops while you are wrestling with this unbearable burden. Um, it's a very helpful counterbalance to keep yourself in check and keep things in perspective and make sure that you're not creating living hell uh, on earth. So before two, two more things before we wrap up or before I open it up for questions, tell me about the five F's. Ah, um, that was my, See, that was my wife's program. I want you to know that I made it all the way to the end. You made it all the way to the end of the book. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so my, my son turned five a uh, year after his transplant and he was really overjoyed because, um, it was in no way guaranteed that he was going to celebrate a fifth birthday. Um, it was touch and go there for quite some time. So uh, my wife, whereas my program, as you talked about, is this uh, constellation of kind of self-help therapies. My, my wife's program, if you will, was kind of five pillars of, uh, of kind of prioritization and, and, and uh, value hierarchy that she uh, helps organize her life. And I believe, I get this right, it's faith, family, friends, food, and fun. And those are, I think, the, the, the five kind of legs of her, of her five-legged stool that she, and, and, and since then, I, I um, this might sound like a shameless plug, but it also happens to be true. Since, since the transplant, my wife has really become involved um, on a profound level with the rare disease community. She started a nonprofit uh, for people with my son's particular illness. It's called the CGD Association of America. My son's illness was called CGD. And um, that's kind of what she um, advises uh, with, with complete humility. But when, when other mothers who are just beginning this, uh, this journey, and as, as most people know, it is still the case that mothers are uh, usually the primary caregiver when it comes to uh, children with illnesses. Um, that's kind of uh, her, her basic five principles, and that's kind of what keeps her going. Well, and she seems like someone I would love to meet. She just seemed so incredible and strong. And I mean, it was just as a mother myself, you can't help but put yourself in that position and wonder, what would I do? Would I find the strength? Would I have the strength to keep going? And it seemed like obviously the book is edited, and but she did it with grace. And she she left a job in PR kind of gave everything up for Sebastian to work to get him cured and it worked which is Yeah, she made she made immense sacrifices mm -hmm. and and she also, you know, I mean this is in the book so I'm not revealing anything um, particularly private at this point, but you know, my son's disease was a genetic condition um, which is passed through the Y excuse me, the X chromosome. And obviously he's a male, so he got his X chromosome from his mother. 
And so there was an immense sense of guilt that she had for a while that, you know, she's, she gave this disease to her beloved child and, um, you know, it, it's, it's just crippling. And again, it's one of those that will uh, question their faith. Um, so she had a lot to struggle with and she had a lot to get through herself, which, you know, related to, but separate from my own particular problems. Mm-hmm. So I just want to leave everybody with this. And if there's anything you would like to add after I read this part of the book, feel free to jump in. Uh, you, you say it's sort of everything that you kind of took out of this experience. It's okay to be scared. You're not the first person to go through this. Be patient. Focus on what's in front of you. Push forward. Protect your head. Hold on. And you can do this. Yeah, that's um, yeah, that's from a, uh, near the end of the book. So you did make it to the end. I um, did. Thank I did. you and so I much for that. I remember it so much because I just <laughs> finished it this morning. So sometimes I read it and then it's a little bit before I interview the person. But this is fresh in my mind. Oh, yeah, that's great. Um, yeah, so those were the kind of quote unquote words of wisdom I was giving to my son, Sebastian, um, when we were back, when he'd been cured, when he was learning to ride a bike without training wheels for the first time. And he had all the apprehensions that um, some kids do with that. And so those were kind of what I was telling him. And as I was telling it to him, I realized that that's, those are the same lessons that I had needed to learn myself when I, even though I was, um, you know, 40, 41, when this happened, um, I might as well have been a child learning to ride a bicycle because I was completely out of my depth and, and terrified of the unknown and, and uncertain of my own uh, capabilities. Um, and of all those, the one that, you know, I, I really found quite helpful is just focus on what's in front of you. You know, when you, when you have a, a major problem, it's very easy to look over the horizon and imagine doomsday scenarios and let the unknowns just crush you. And if you can just deal with what has to be done next and focus on that, um, it's a very uh, therapeutic thing to do, to, to not let your mind get completely subsumed and drown in kind of a free-floating anxiety that's always looking for something to, to attach onto. Which is really hard for the mind to do. Yes, yes. That was the one great thing about being in the transplant unit, is that you're you know, on a very rigorous schedule. There's all, every 15 or 20 minutes, there's the next thing to do. There's the next set of vital tests. There's the next medications. There's the bath. There's the weigh-in. There's the the mouth uh, treatment, there's the activities, the whole thing. So, um, you know, it's like, to a certain degree, it's like being in the army. You know, they, you're, you're kept busy, so your mind um, doesn't have the opportunity to, to ruminate. Mm-hmm. So, Miguel, if anybody's interested in hearing your story, reading your book, tell us where they can find you, and then I'm going to go ahead and open it up uh, for questions for those who are in the audience on Fireside listening to today's episode. Yeah, this fireside thing is fun. This is my first time doing it. I'm, I'm, I know. Isn't I'm a cool? believer. Um, <laughs> yeah, so the book is a book. It's a real book. It was published by uh, Penguin Random House. And so it's available, of course, on Amazon and barnesandnoble.com. It's um, on the shelves. You know, I was, you know, when I'm traveling, I always look around. And it's in about 50% of the bookstores I've visited. It's actually currently on the shelf. Of course, they can order it. Uh, if you want to know more information, uh, you can go to my website, miguelsancho.net. I apologize that miguelsancho.com was taken, I think, by a Spanish model with the same name, um, <laughs> who also might have written a great book, by the way. I have no idea. 
But um, yeah, yeah, that's your next interview. Um, But uh, I would say this, you know, for people who read books, I read books, but I don't finish every one of them. I oftentimes find myself, you know, getting not hooked in, right? I'll give any book to page 75. And if I'm not hooked by page 75, I'll probably go on to another book. Um, And this book was written by somebody who uh, has that, you know, reaction to a lot of books. And it was written by a television producer who is constantly mindful of the short attention span of an audience with a remote in their hand. So I don't want people to think that it's just kind of an extended rumination and navel gazing. Um, You know, I really tried hard to make it, you know, uh, an engaging read with some sort of little morsel, either stylistic or, uh, or content wise on each page. And it was, I can attest to that. It was absolutely a page turner, even though, you know, the outcome, right. I knew your son survived, but still trying to figure out how he got there and where you ended up and where you ended up in your marriage and how this all kind of shook out was, it, it was, that's why I was up this morning finishing it because I wanted did, to get to the end. Did the funny parts land for you? I mean, I tried, I was thinking, you know, if, if that's why I tried to infuse some humor in there because who wants to spend seven hours reading, you know, this dark story about sick kids. Um, so how did I do? Yeah, I think you did good. I think it felt, it felt very much like it was very real. It was very authentic. It was very vulnerable. I think, especially from, frankly, a male's voice, you know, oftentimes we hear women talking about these issues and the struggles and, and children with illnesses or death or things along those lines. I mean, my past few podcasts have all been women who experienced either a child loss, mostly child loss. Um, But to hear it from your perspective and to hear your, your humor kind of dropped in there periodically and, and the struggles that you face. I mean, I'm, I was excited to meet you in person to kind of put a face to your story. Yeah. Um, well, that's very kind of you to say, you know, I mean, I, um, anybody who knows me would still say that, you know, I have work to do on myself. I'm still very much a work in progress. Um, but I think one of the exercises, one of the helpful exercises of just writing the book for me was to kind of deploy the same kind of critical skills that I've, that I've been aiming at other people in the course of my years as a journalist, uh, on myself and seeing how, how well that exercise would go if I had the, the honesty to do that. I have a question having nothing to do with the book. What is, what is your proof is out there project? Right. So the proof is out there, um, has nothing to do with this book, but it is, um, in a similar vein, kind of an exploration of, uh, science and the unknown. But basically it's a show for the history channel, which is a wonderful, uh, network to work for. And what we do is it's a found footage show, which has become very popular in the COVID era since, you know, going out in the field and shooting isn't that easy to do. Um, so people will, you know, on their cell phones, you know, record something uh, that they believe might be some sort of unexplained or anomalous phenomenon, whether it's a UFO or uh, an unidentified animal or some other kind of uh, unexplained occurrence. And then we'll examine it and have a group of scientists explain what they think it is. And it's often the case that there is a prosaic explanation for what we're actually looking at. Or in some cases, it's somebody who's doctored their video. Um, <laughs> but in a, in a handful of cases, and a significant percentage of the cases, our experts uh, can't identify what the thing is, which is, I think, very helpful as we all kind of approach 
not just our own lives, but the world around us with a sense of humility in the face of the unknown and a sense mm-hmm. of humility in the face of our own uh, powers of prediction and analysis. Um, you know, when you when I said it was at my son's bedside that I came closest to God, it's because there were many moments where we were standing literally at the edge of human knowledge. We were right at the maximum extension of our scientific capabilities. And at that moment, we had to hand it over to whatever you want to call it, God, nature, chance, the unknown, this weird intersection of biology and technology where not everything can be predicted. I'm going to have to tune into that show. Oh, yeah, it's a fun show. <laughs> Half hour, we do a handful of stories every time. Um, you know, What's been your favorite one so far? Oh, wow. We, we're, we're, well, we're, we've got 30 episodes coming up, and it's, um, uh, they're going to be debuting in, uh, in September now. My favorite ones? Like, what's the most unexplainable thing? Well, you know, there's a couple of these UFO videos. There's yeah. plenty of the UFO videos that can be explained. But there are, there are a, a handful that even the United States government now is saying that they can't identify um, now they might turn out to be, you know, Chinese drones trying to tickle our air defense systems, but, um, but even that explanation doesn't explain all of them. Um, so those are a few. And then, um, well, I'll just have to let, you know, encourage people to watch, but I will say it's, it, it's, it's a nice thing about the show. It has a broad eclecticism and it's kind of a mosaic of different kinds of videos and stuff. We, we try to give people, you know, a, a broad diversity of content. Um, do you? F- oh, sorry. Go ahead. go ahead. No, I was just going to ask. Do you feel like the show came out of this experience with your son of these unexplainable experiences that sometimes we have? That's where my show. That's where my podcast came out of. Uh huh. Um, no. Well, no, but yes. No, the original idea came from some of the really um, sharp and creative people at uh, the History Channel and at Six West Productions, but. When the way these shows work is, you know, they they give you an idea and they give you a format and they give you some guidelines, but really, it's in many cases it's kind of unformed clay, and how the clay ultimately takes formation and becomes the the kind of idea objectified in the real world and actualized is dependent on the experiences and the perspectives of the people making it, which was me in this case. So mm-hmm. the original idea. Um, was not mine, but the evolved idea uh, is infused with a lot of my experiences and, and perspectives. Yes. Okay. I've, I, I said I was going to open it up for questions and then I just kept asking my own. So now I really am going to open it up for questions. If anybody wants to come on up and just go ahead and I guess, raise your hand, ask to come up on stage and you can ask your question. Sometimes it takes like a few seconds or sometimes no one has any questions and so yeah that's okay too yeah no pressure wrap it up nothing oh there we go (laughs) hi donnell donnell am i saying that right just unmute your mic pushing the little monkey at the bottom Yeah, it took me a while to figure out that monkey with the mute. I know, I know. Kind of funny. On my team, we do these 
daily meetings and every time you talk on mute, you have to contribute a quarter to the, uh, <laughs> the team fund for what's some... the fund up to at this point? Oh, I oh, think about 20 bucks. 20 bucks. <laughs> okay. Okay. I'm here. Yay. Hi. Is it done now? Yay. 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 Yes. Donnell. Okay. Donnell. I'm getting a little I... bit of echo. Oh, uh, oh gosh. Oh, you know what? Hold on one second. Is that better? I think so. Yeah. Hold on. Hold on. Hold on. See, Miguel, oh. I need you to produce this my show to help me with this piece of it. You know that, but it's live. That's the exciting part. You never know what's going to happen next. I know. I That's know. what you get you in exchange for the the rough production value. Okay, I'm the here. excitement of. Uh huh. Okay. Hi. Yay! Finally. Okay, I actually have a question for Amy in regards sure. to this podcast. What is your having just finished reading the book and uh, talking to Miguel? What is your number one takeaway from the entire thing and process? What is my number one takeaway? Uh, I think it's the strength and resilience of the human spirit. Honestly, that was sort of something that I was just incredibly moved by and how we don't think that we're going to have it in us to go on and yet we can keep going on despite what seems like insurmountable obstacles over and over and over again. And that was where I found myself as I continued to put myself really in the shoes of your wife, frankly, because that's how I would probably. That, those are the shoes that would fit. Right. Those Exactly. Those are the shoes that would fit. And, and just kept saying to myself, would I have it in me? Would I have it in me? Would I have it in me? Mm -hmm. And I think that we all do. We find that strength when we need to, and we rely on the people around us, which was really powerful. And what you shared, the community that you had that, mm -hmm. that just formed out of nowhere, kind of, I mean, you moved to Durham and all these people stepped in to help. And so I think that those were the pieces for me that really, really stood out. I love that. That's very powerful. And I, I hope that Miguel also, um, that that resounds with him with, with what he was trying to get across to his readers and share with people. Absolutely. I mean, you know, the, the, like I said before, you know, the, the world will beat you up and mm -hmm. you will be disappointed by other people. You'll be disappointed by yourself. But one of the great things that happened was, uh, this kind of spontaneous blossoming of support and kindness and uh, generosity beyond any reasonable expectation that, or frankly, uh, a dessert that, um, that really was an inspiration and, and a support for us in so many ways at so many uh, different turns. So, you know, again, a lot of the life is about interpretation, right? And people can get you depressed and the world can get you depressed, but at the same time, they can also be very uplifting um, when you find yourself in these circumstances. And uh, that's kind of what gave us hope and strength. And I think Felicia would say the same thing. Thank you. Thank Thanks, you. Donnell. Am I saying your name right? Donnell? Don yeah, perfect. Donnell. Okay, perfect. Thank you. Thank Does anybody you. else... Does anybody else want to come on up and ask any questions? Sarah just joined, I see, but I'll give it another few seconds because it seems like it's a little delayed.
Oh. Okay. Well, Miguel, thank you so much for your time today and for sharing your beautiful story. For people who are interested, who want to check it out, miguelsancho.net. It will be in my show notes. The book is called More Than You Can Handle, A Rare Disease, A Family in Crisis, and the Cutting Edge Medicine That Cured the Incurable. Thanks, everybody. This was so much fun. And Thank I'm so you. honored to, to, to be able to participate. You're, you're very kind to have me on. Thank you. Thank you so much. Like what you heard today and want to hear more? Wondering what comes next and what it all means? Head over to Apple Podcast, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, or anywhere you get your podcasts and hit subscribe. Also, if you could take a minute to rate and review my podcast, I would really appreciate it. Stay tuned as we continue to explore life, death, and the space between.